Alright, this is starting to weird me out, guys. I like this episode, too. What the hell? <laughs> I mean... For anybody who uh, hasn't heard this before on the off chance, I remember quitting Deep Space Nine in Season 1 because of how much I wasn't liking it. Now, granted, I can tell you the specific episode I quit on. It was uh, Move Along Home. But as I'm re-watching this with analysis mode, I'm like, this is actually pretty good. What the hell? This is so confusing. Then again, it's not that confusing. Because I found that when you really go through with analysis mode on, it, maybe this is just me. But I'm trying to be... I'm trying to think how to put this. Because it's not like I'm trying to be as objective as possible. That's not really my intention. I, I'm trying to be as analytical as possible. But one of the important things of this whole analysis mode and rumination is to try and be... really examine how it makes me feel in addition to how it makes me think. And... By definition, that's going to be the opposite of objective, right? But when I went through with analysis mode on Voyager, I found myself way more positive towards Voyager than I remembered. And the same has generally been true with TNG, with, of course, the major exception of Code of Honor. But, you know, going through those first few episodes that I've already done as of now, you know, real life, uh, of TNG Season 1, I was like, this is actually better than I remembered it to be. And that's pretty much the exact same boat I'm in right now. Now, I want to give special praise to Paul Lynch in this episode. He's not a very prolific director. He, he's not like Mr. Livingston, who's done all sorts of stuff. He's only done, like, I think, ten episodes of TNG and DS9. But every one of them has a unique directing style, and the flow of it is phenomenal. One of the things he likes to do, and this is also attributed to the script. I want to give credit where credit is due. But one of the things he likes to do is have a scene, and then in this scene are three different set pieces, all of which are happening at the same time. And the one that's on camera just kind of shifts from bit to bit. And once these events are concluded, it naturally shifts to this one. And once that's concluded, it naturally shifts to this one. But he doesn't rely on that trope. He doesn't lean on that as a crutch, as a directing tool. Because that is some good directing. But then he likes to mix it up every now and again by having a scene which just has a thematic connection to the next one, or in which one of the characters sees something, and that connects them to the next scene, and so forth and so on. So the overall pace and flow of this episode is very, very smooth, butter smooth. And I like that. It really added... The, I know I keep commenting on directing, but it really added to my enjoyment of the work. It's especially needed in this episode because, to be completely blunt, most of the acting is not quite there, with a couple of noteworthy exceptions. Uh, I was actually just talking about this uh, in my Discord, about how stiff a lot of the early actors came across to each other. And one of the most obvious examples of that is Avery Brooks and Terry Farrell. These are people, two people who are supposed to be, you know, long-term friends and all that, who act as if they've just met. Now, I know what you're going to say. They have just met Trill, etc., yada, yada, yada. But that's not what I mean. I mean... I mean, it's stiff. I mean, it feels like the actors haven't really found a way to gel together yet. There's no chemistry there. I know I keep saying that word over and over, but it's so important for a work with live-action actors for there to be chemistry on, on, on camera with the characters. Chemistry? Let me let you know a little thing. I, I don't think I've talked about this before. 
Lack of chemistry between two actors is one of the reasons that some directors in previous works, this goes to television and movies as well, do the over-the-shoulder the over thing. Now, if, if you don't know what I mean by the over-the-shoulder thing, let's say we've got Bob and Bobina. What? And they're acting together, but they have no chemistry. They just bounce off each other, and it comes across as stiff and disinteresting, okay? So the director says, well, that's not cool. We can't do that. Both of these are fine actors in their own right, but they're just not acting well together. You know, it's, it's some of the Babylon 5 problem, if you will. So what they do is they put Bob on camera, and then they have a stand-in, who is just a random person who says no lines, who has either a wig or the hair styled the same way, with the same uniform on, and that stand-in just stands there. It just stands there like while the person giving their performance delivers it to this stand-in and the camera stays on their shoulder and they pretty much perform their entire half of the scenes to, a, to effectively to a wall then they switch it and the other actor does that and then they splice these together so the camera kinda goes and yeah, I'm sure you've seen this if you think about it the camera kinda goes back and forth between the two people talking so it looks as if they're talking to each other when in fact they film these scenes completely separate from each other that's one of the tricks that people have used to try and get away with this now they don't try this here Instead, it looks like what they're trying to do is the opposite, where they try to force the actors to have chemistry. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but there is a, a valid reason to approach things like that. Basically, if you have two actors who aren't really gelling together well, one of the things you can do is try to make as many scenes as possible where the two act off of each other in multiple different ways, too. Notice that, again, to go with Cisco and uh, Dax, uh, they have professional scenes, they have personal scenes, they have awkward scenes, they have reminiscing scenes. You know, they, they try to hit a, a, a variety of scenes. It's not a huge variety, but more than one type of scene so that the actors can get used to each other and thus become more comfortable with each other in order to have more natural chemistry with each other. Any director will tell you, if the actors like each other, the characters are going to perform better next to each other. And this is actually the exact same thing that would end up happening on TNG as well. Although I don't actually know if it was deliberate on their part, but I digress. Anyways, so uh, so this is actually the first appearance of two characters on this show. Keiko and, well, actually three, excuse me. Keiko, Molly, and Rom. Now, I'm just going to comment on all, uh, all three of these very briefly. Keiko, of course, she's been Keiko before. She was Keiko over on TNG. She's still Keiko. I'll talk more about her specific arc in a minute. Uh, Molly is awesome. Molly is one of the rare examples of when a kid on television is actually exactly right. You know, usually you get a child actor and they don't know how to act because they're a child. You know, they don't have the years of experience or anything like that. And thus we get, you know, rascals, for example. But when, when Molly is on screen... Something about her and her presentation is just perfectly adorable. And that's true even in this episode, her first one to be shown on DS9. So kudos where kudos is doing. I want to talk about Rom, though. What the hell is up with Rom in this episode? He doesn't act like Rom at all, does he? You can tell they just didn't know where they were going with him or what they were doing with him at this point. So he's just kind of Nog's dad and, by consequence, Cork's brother. But otherwise, he comes across as frankly, a typical Ferengi. So he's just kind of like... Whoops, hang on. Okay, yes, I did turn off the AC. Sorry. Sorry. It's been a long day. Been doing a lot of TNG and DS9 stuff here. So, it's weird to see him this way, 
But I think if we twist it, and we do have to do that, this could still make sense as the Rom. Basically, the Rom who was really, shall we say, bullied into being more Ferengi. And of course, as we know throughout the course of the series, he will slowly become more comfortable with himself into being less Ferengi and becoming the Rom that we know and care about. So I, I still think this could make sense with regards to his character. It's just on us to kind of shift it there. Obviously, from an out-of-character perspective, this is just they didn't know what to do with the character yet, so they said, play a Ferengi. And of course, Max Grodenchik, who has played multiple Ferengi in the past, just played a Ferengi again, you know? <laughs> Anyways, I also want to mention one other thing here. I'm trying, I did this in my run through Babylon 5 as well, I'm trying really hard not to compare the two shows, but I have to compare the two shows here, because probably my biggest mandate when it comes to my show and these ruminations I do is being honest with you, even if it's something that you're not going to like to hear, or something I don't want to talk about. And in this case, it's the flow of format. Usually when I'm doing an episode of Voyager or TNG for these ruminations, uh, the way my notes work is, you know, thoughts on behind the scenes right at the top, you know, kind of like the gameplay section I have for game, game ruminations. So thoughts on behind the scenes at the top, and then the flow of the episode. Like if you were to read down, you would pretty much just see here's how the episode develops, right? Make sense? Couldn't do that with Babylon 5. Babylon 5 was structured so differently that what I had to do is I had to do sections. So instead I would put these lines. I don't know if you could see these. I put these lines here and be like, this is this plot arc, which shows up at like the 5-minute mark, the 15-minute mark, the 30-minute mark, and the 45-minute mark, right? Like, it comes up here and there. So this arc, and then this arc, and then this arc. And I would talk about all the different plots that were happening on throughout the course of the episode. Now... I don't know if this is going to be true in the future, but for this episode in particular, I found myself having to start doing that in order to keep up with the way the episode was structured. And it's part of that flow. One plot leads rather smoothly into that. We've got the Bashir and Dax plot, which is also kind of colliding with the Dax and Cisco plot, which Cisco, of course, is connected to the Odo and Murder Mystery plot, and that's connected to Odo and Quark. And Quark is connected to Rom and Nog, who is connected to Keiko and the kids. Oh, and also Nog and, and Jake is in there as well. And I think that's all the major ones. And all of these kind of smoothly slide, you know, together. But talking about it linearly doesn't quite make sense when, when you have this many threads going on. So we'll see how this works out in the future with Deep Space Nine. Also, I was so embarrassed about not remembering the goddamn guy's name last night that I wrote down twice Ibudan's name. So I can say Ibudan, it's right I wrote it down. <sighs> Real quick. Um, so, Bashir hits on Dax. Yay. Now, I thought this scene was going to throw a wrench in the gears. I thought it was, this was going to be the first scene where it's like, ah, clearly you can't, you know, look back on this and say, aha, you know, he's the superhuman, blah, 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 genetically engineered. But then... I watched it, and I was like, well, hang on, no, this still kind of makes sense. So he comes in, obviously hits on her, you know, usual. And obviously the in the puffed-up, inexperienced guy is like, okay, I will do this thing. up, oh, fail instantly. Oh, well. And I'm going to try again now that they're gone, you know, just to prove how good I am, that kind of a thing, right? But if you think about it from the other perspective, it still makes sense. Obviously, I've already explained his clumsy hitting on Dax. That's something I've already mentioned. What I like about it 
is that it's so obvious why he wouldn't want to demonstrate his mental prowess in such an obvious way. So he just pretty much deliberately lets his mind go, yeah, and fails the sphere instantly to, to ensure that nothing happens. I wouldn't be surprised if he could actually accomplish this. And this brings me to the really nice point. When they leave, he tries again, but we don't see it. Again, from an out-of-character perspective, it's obvious that this is supposed to be the young, cocky doctor who was like, oh, I'll show them. But looking back from an in-character perspective, I find myself wondering how close Bashir came with his super meta mega-human intellect. Just food for thought on that. Then he tries to hit on her some more, and then she goes into uh, some pontification. Let me, let me go ahead and discuss something really quick here. First of all, Part of the reason that I didn't like Jadzia Dax when I first watched this show was because too often she came across as <sighs> superior. You know what I mean, right? Like that sort of smug arrogance. Not the kind of, you know, nah, nah, you know, not, not to an extreme extent, but that sort of almost condescending look, okay? I understand that this is the way you are, but we're better than that, and we try to avoid that. And that's just how her character has come across for me, at least in early DS9, uh, in many occasions. And that is really on display here as she gives this speech about being rising above temptations and younger people and blah, 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 when it comes to relationships. And we have a, a more communal, blah, 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 just preach, 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 preach. I, I'm just like, okay, yep, 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 come on. I will give credit where credit is due. Terry Farrell's performance helps to salvage that. Because if you just hear the words on the paper, it's just smug condescension. But the way she says it, it not only softens that condescension, but also shows that she doesn't quite believe in it. And as we'll see throughout the course of the series, she doesn't quite believe in that. Or I should say they, it, whatever you want to call it, trill. But, you know, I'm going to say her. Let's move on from that. She obviously doesn't buy into that. And based on what we know about Curzon, he didn't buy into that either. So again, this is fairly in character. So props to the performance of Terry Farrell for actually managing to salvage a scene that otherwise would have made me groan really, really badly. So, Odo and Quark is an interesting scene. Uh, there's one right at the beginning, and there's one towards the middle end-ish. And... I like it because not only is so I mentioned there was some exceptions to the chemistry thing. Armin Shimmerman and Renea Bergenois do have a pretty natural chemistry, even this early on. The two scenes they have together are quite well done. And I also have to admit, I like what they're doing with Quark already. Even this, the third episode, is already establishing the Ferengi in a different mindset. See... As I have talked about and will continue to talk about in the future, the Ferengi went from we're the horrible villains to we're kind of the bad guys to we're slapstick jokes. Like, they, they, they dived off the deep end into comedy. And they became the laughingstock of Star Trek species. Multiple people involved in Deep Space Nine, including several of the writers and Armin Shimmerman himself, sat down and said, we want to reestablish the Ferengi. It's okay for them to still be a joke. You know, we, want, we don't want to completely retcon that. But why don't we make there more depth to that joke? Why don't we make them more than just greedy capitalist pigs? You know, in other words, make them less of a 
race of hats. I'm sure several of my Star Trek fans will know what I mean by that. And you can see early, how or even early on, Shimmerman was trying to throw more nuance into his performance. And honestly, I think he did a great job. Now, I'm a little bit biased because Armin Shimmerman is amazing and Quark is a fantastic character. But I do think that even this early on, the dis differences between the two are stark. This is even more interesting since I believe next week's episode... Yeah, yeah. So, you guys next week will be seeing The Last Outpost, the first Ferengi episode. And I just watched that uh, a couple days ago. Seeing the difference between the very beginning of the Ferengi and the very beginning of the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine is stark contrast. So, again, kudos. Now, I want to mention something. Uh, many accusations are levied my way. It's kind of a consequence of putting myself out on the Internet. Anybody knows this. Uh, never mind someone who does this for a living. So I'm sure I'm going to get a whole bunch of comments commenting on bias or just a Kurt Tracky or Get Alive or you know, all that stuff. I've already I've already heard it all. <laughs> Trust me. In real life and on my actual show. I mean... Good God, do you know how many comments I get about me taking things too seriously on Voyager? Or how dare I try to use real-life concepts when it comes to analyzing a fictional work? All that stuff. You know, Again, I've heard it all. But I want to mention this because one of the things that I was worried about walking into both TNG and Deep Space Nine was that I would be too positively biased towards them. Now, that probably sounds like a weird worry. But it's the kind of thing I think about, legitimately, in, in my own head in my own mind space or whatever. I don't want to sit down and look at a work and not acknowledge its flaws. I, I don't want to do that. I actively disagree with that mentality. That is almost, uh, you know, fanboyism at that point. It's one step away from fanboyism, as I define fanboyism, which, for anybody who hasn't heard me say it, true fanboyism, as I define it, is someone who, I love this and anyone who doesn't is wrong. You know, in other words, taking that same mentality to an extreme, right? Same thing with hate boyism. I dislike this. Anybody who doesn't dislike this is wrong, right? So, so I don't want to be like that. I want to acknowledge its flaws. I had a whole stream pointing out the flaws of Final Fantasy VI, my favorite fictional work of all time, just to try and emphasize that there's still bad in the good. Now, I mention that because it's been weirding me out how much I've been liking early Deep Space Nine so far. But I have to admit, the writing is not great. It's not actively bad. And again, I mentioned the, the, the flow of the script is nice, although I'm not 100% sure how much of that is on the script and how much of that is on the director. But the overall construction of the plot of this episode is actually quite weak. There's no actual strength to it, no strong thematic undercurrent, no great division of it. The only thing that really uplifts this episode is good directing, which I've already praised, some pretty good acting on behalf of the characters, and some good character moments. But that's what this episode feels like. Like, the murder mystery is almost an excuse for the character moments. Now, having said that, I'm okay with that, really. I mean, I'd prefer a much stronger plot, and DS9 will later, later deliver much stronger plots with character moments. But it really felt like they sat down and was like, okay, we want to have this connection and this connection and this connection. Okay, let's throw in a murder mystery into the background. Because it's a the murder mystery itself, if you tear away all the character stuff between Quark and Odo, between uh, Sisko and Dax, between Bashir and Dax, between Sisko and Bashir, 
between Cork and Ogo again. Yes, I'm mentioning it again because it's worth mentioning. If you tear away all the good character moments and all of and O'Brien and Keiko, I almost forgot about that, and Keiko's own individual moments, you tear all that stuff away and you just look at the plot by itself. It's like, this is it. It reminds me of, uh, I believe, Ex Post Facto was the name of the episode over on Voyager, which is also a very weak uh, murder mystery plot that was salvaged by some good directing and some good acting. I digress. Moving on. So, God, I haven't gotten past my first quadrant of, of notes yet. Let's talk about O'Brien and Keiko uh, really quick. Or no, I'm sorry, that's the wrong section. <laughs> Let's talk about Dax. Let's talk about the Trill problem. So I've, I've kind of, I think I've mentioned this before. They basically just invent a new species with the Trill in DS9. And again, I'm actually okay with that. I mean, call it something else, but whatever. It's a new species. I'm with it. Okay, cool, cool. But what I mean by that is they developed them as they went. It was actually a deliberate decision on behalf of the writers to not sit down and say, these are the Trill. Instead, as things came along, they would add to the Trill culture and the Trill physiology and psychology and all that, bit by bit. It's, uh, there, it, it's oh, I forget what it's called. I've even talked about this before. It's kind of the same thing Overwatch has been doing with its storytelling. In other words, there are two general concepts when it comes to setting building when it comes to writing your story there's that's it it's it's front loading or back loading those are the terms i use front loading is obvious you sit down and you say this and then once you've developed the world then you sit down and write the scripts back loading is you write the scripts and as things come up you say oh well i need to establish this thing so i'm going to make up something about them and then add to the lore as you go right so Deep Space Nine actually, it's funny though, because you ever want to talk about how different Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 are? Babylon 5 was hugely front-loaded. Almost the entire story was written before he ever went pen to paper and actually approached, you know, executives at networks to try and make that show, right? Deep Space Nine was severely back-loaded. Huge amounts of the story of Deep Space Nine was never planned out. The Bashir arc was never planned out. Where they were going with Garrick was never planned out. The Dominion didn't even exist when they first started writing this show, let alone the Gemini or anything like that. You know, all of that stuff was backloaded rather than frontloaded. So, and I mentioned this because I've talked about this concept before with regards to Overwatch specifically. And I've had a lot of people disdain it because, ah, you know, because classic uh thinking would say that front loading is better and i even agree i prefer to front load but back loading is still a valid writing style the trick is to take careful notes as you go to try not to contradict yourself and with regards to the trill at least i think they did a good job with that because we kind of slowly develop the trill as we go just like we slowly develop the bajorans and the cardassians and the klingons and the, the you get it you get it but it is nice to showcase that the Trill problem exists here. The idea of, well, you were friends with past me, but now there's me, me. It's kind of... They approach this the same way they do the Doctors over on Doctor Who. They really do. Even though this is a, you know, on the face of it, this is a completely different situation. The writers approach it exactly the same. I have all the memories of past me. But I identify as a separate me. Each of the doctors, with rare exceptions, usually identifies as a separate entity from previous doctors, and in some cases, future doctors. Even knowing that they were once that person, right? Same thing with the Trill. So it's actually presented as unique, 
even in even this early on in Deep Space Nine, that Dax would remain friends with Cisco, despite the fact that Dax was friends with Cisco. Because usually that kind of thing is shunned and, and shied away from in Trill society, and with good reason. You know, as has been pointed out by, I believe, Pillar, uh, the kind of aristocracy that would build if the Trill just kind of all had their own social network that never changed, right? Like, you understand how that could be such a horrible problem? You think Blue Bloods was a problem here in real life? Holy crap. Imagine if each Blue Blood got a new body and then kept the same connections to the old families, right? Anyways. I just thought it was good, and they did a good job of it. Also want to give a quick aside. Cisco invites Dax to lunch, or dinner, and then, you know, really naturally, credit to... uh Alexander Siddig, you know, credit to him. He responds so naturally, yeah, I'd love to go for dinner. And Cisco's like, uh, okay. But I want to give credit where credit is due, because he takes a moment to actually do something with it. He doesn't back out. He obviously doesn't really care for Bashir, and let's be honest, nobody really cares for Bashir early on, part of the character arc, as we already established. But he makes an attempt of it. He sits down with his officer and actually starts to talk to him about old Curzon, and, and reaches out to him and tries to bond with him, so... Credit where credit is due. Now, next thing I want to talk about is the Keiko plot. Now, first of all, before I go into anything else, let me just say that I have often said that the O'Brien and Keiko relationship was the only good relationship in Star Trek. Now, I have since proved myself wrong about that. <laughs> there are other relationships that even I feel actually work in Star Trek. And this is coming from me, Mr. Anti-Relationship. However... I do think that the O'Brien Keiko, you know, I do still think, despite having adjusted my opinion over the last several years, that the O'Brien Keiko relationship works very well. And I think the best way to explain why is because it's quite real. There are little moments here and there that are nuanced enough to make me feel that this is a married couple rather than a married caricature, which is too often what this kind of thing comes across as. I've actually heard some people argue that they are, in fact, a caricature, that real couples don't argue that way, or real couples don't have those kind of problems. Uh, I don't agree. Maybe I'm just biased because I've seen real couples have those kind of problems, and I've seen real couples go through those kind of issues in real life many, many, many times in my days. Um, probably my favorite example is actually from a much further on episode in the series, where O'Brien is trying to make it up to her, and he's he's just sitting here, and he's trying to reach out to her through a door, and there's this pause, and she says, "Okay, give me a minute. I'll talk. You know, I'll, I'll think about it. You know, give me. Let me know later." And there's just this, oh, and O'Brien just kind of sinks. Anybody involved in a long relationship probably knows what that feels like. That moment of when you are. You, you, you're not certain what to do, and you, you think you've screwed up, but you're not sure how much you've screwed up, but you want to make it up together because you obviously care about this person, and a relationship, let's be honest, is about making it work. And so you, you make the effort, and you make the release, and rather than the yes or the no, you get the maybe. And it's like, ugh, because the maybe's worse than the yes or the no. The no is like, okay, that's horrible and, and crushing, but I'll deal with it. The yes is awesome, we can move forward. The maybe is... Now you're just stuck in that tension moment. And they portray that scene beautifully. Same thing here. There's several scenes where O'Brien is trying to reach out to Keiko, and Keiko is obviously trying to reach out back. And he makes the offering, you know, I'll, I'll put in for a transfer. And she flat out says, well, that wouldn't be fair either. And I like that, that simple nuance. Odo gives a small speech 
earlier, saying, you know, compromise. And the way he says it is, again, very pragmatic and very cynical. The idea that compromise means doing what they want rather than doing what you want. Obviously, that's not what compromise means. It's funny, though, that that scene is immediately followed by O'Brien flat out admitting, here, I will give up my career and my promotion to you if this will make you happy. I will do this. And it's not done as a sort of, fine, I'll do it for you, or, I guess, you know, it's not passive-aggressively, I guess I'll give up my hopes and dreams if it'll make you happy, honey. You know, it's nothing like that. Instead, it's just the simple and earnest, you're more important to me than my job. So if I got to do this for you, done. And he says it so simply like that. Again, credit to Colmini. And she, of course, counteracts, no! Because that isn't a compromise, is it? Both of them want. And she wants her own career path. She wants to do something. She has ambition. I've talked about this before when it comes to Starfleet and the Federation in general. It's probably one of the things I really like about Star Trek, almost as an aggregate. You know, I've I've heard the argument before. If you live in paradise, why do anything? Why not just lounge around and watch TV all day? Now, I personally don't agree with that mentality, but then again, I'm not a really lazy person, and I'm, in fact, an extremely ambitious person. But I love the fact that so many people in Star Trek, who are a part of the Federation especially, reach out to try and accomplish that they don't sit on their laurels. They don't, they don't say, well, nothing worth doing. No! They say, I want to be a part of Starfleet. I want to join the career, you know, the officer track. I want to make a restaurant. I want to pursue botany. I want to teach kids. You know, they, they want things. And they reach out and try to accomplish that. And I love the fact that both, it's clearly presented here, without really having to smash it in your face, that both O'Brien and Keiko are ambitious, that they want, that they, of course, they're, they care about each other and their lives do this with each other. But each of them still wants to have their own, for lack of a better term, career path. He wants this promotion and this advancement and what this could mean for him and the work that it means. And she wants, in her own words, to be useful, to accomplish something. So then, of course, she sees Jake and Nog. Now, I'm going to pause on the Keiko thing for a second to talk about Jake and Nog. Moving Jake and Nog together as characters is a natural move. It's, it's so obvious that I would be surprised if they didn't plan it out from the beginning. I wasn't able to find any information about that in specific. But... Moving those together makes lots and lots of sense. I don't have a lot to say about it, other than the fact that it's a great move that will have many awesome character moments in the future and lead to some great scenes and some great episodes. But what I also love about it is it's literally the two worlds meeting concept. Now, again, this is a very classic type of trope. In fact, it's almost basic. But... As ever, I don't care if you're doing something expected or new or, in, or or old or whatever. I care that you do something good with it. So we have the Ferengi child and the Starfleet child, which on paper are about as different from each other as it's getting. And yet the two meet in the middle and have friendship, and that will grow and nurture over the coming years. And that's awesome, because they do something with it. Now, they don't do much with it here. Here, all we see is kids on a station with to quote Keiko, an unstructured perspective. You know, it's not like a starship. She flat out says that. Nice touch, by the way, acknowledging the difference of the setting. It would be too easy for the writers to treat this like any other Star Trek, well, I shouldn't say any other Star Trek show, to treat this like TNG-treated kids. 
kids can do pretty much whatever on the Enterprise, even when it's in, you know, the danger of the week or whatever kind of a thing. So they've got, you know, they got the holodeck and they've got the, the gymnasium and they actually have school and all that fun stuff. So they can just run around and do whatever. And it's fine as long as they're not at red alert, right? Can't quite do that on a station. You need something more structured there. You need some of that infrastructure, for lack of a better term, forgive me for repeating myself, in order to give the kids something to grow into and out of. Kids, by their very nature, grow based on experiences. And I love the fact that she flat out says they need a school. Because it's not just about sitting them down and teaching them. You could accomplish that with a computer. They flat out say that. You know, it's boring sitting and just reading stuff in front of the computer to learn. The whole point, I'm sorry, I'm getting into personal opinion, so forgive me. The whole point of school isn't just learning from a book. It's learning from people. It's learning through experience. It's interacting with others, understanding social dynamics, accomplishing works together, comprehending teamwork, and position within a societal construct. You know, it, it, there's more to school than just textbooks and essays, right? And I like how she hits the nail on that head so thoroughly and accurately. Forgive me for gushing, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, it's awesome that she picked up on that. Because I agree with her. It's right. Deep Space Nine in character should have a school. And all of these kids from these different, you know, races that are here, which at the moment consists of Bajorans, humans, and uh, Ferengi, there will be more, should have an environment in which they can interact together and learn in a structured environment. Now, I just want to defend myself really quick. When I say structured, I know I've used that word like 50 times, I don't mean everything must be regimental and in the exact right order. I don't know why I went with that accent with that, but you know what I mean. You don't have to have this rigid. I don't mean rigid. I mean, and this is true for adults as well, having a schedule helps. Like, even if it's got some wiggle room, you know, it, again, it doesn't have to be some super rigid mega thing. You don't have to, to go all, you know, anal retentive on your own schedule. But having a schedule helps. Waking up at the same relative time every day, eating at the relative same times every day, going to sleep at the same relative time every day, these things help us on a literal phys physical level. It is more healthy to do that kind of a thing. So it's logical that having this kind of structure for these kids so they could have a regular patterned activity that they can then use to grow and nurture from is awesome. And I can't believe I've talked this much about that. I only had one note written down on the paper. But that's Deep Space Nine in general. That's been my whole experience ruminating on Deep Space Nine. I scribble down a quick note, and then I just talk about it. The note is just there to remind me, because all this stuff's already up here. <sighs> Thank you for letting me ruminate on Deep Space Nine. You guys are awesome. So, let's talk about one other thing really quick about Jake and Sisko. Or, Jake and Sisko, excuse me, Jake and Nog. I find it at first, I was just kind of, because Cisco is, shall we say, heavily biased and prejudiced against uh, Ferengi. Okay, I could kind of see where that's coming from. So that's either fully understandable or eye-rolling, depending on which attitude you take. But either way, you get it, right? What I like is when Rom brings in Nog at the end of the episode, I don't want you to have anything to do with that human child. That made me smile, because that shows that the bias goes both ways. And that's how that kind of bias should be written. You know, the Zootopia thing. It's not, it's not unidirectional. It's not unilateral. Anyways, so now let's actually talk about the murder mystery plot. I have the fewest notes about this. 
couple quick notes. First of all, I wrote down a quote here. Killing a Cardassian isn't considered much of a crime nowadays. Now, that tiny little note really emphasizes a problem that, that's going to be a recurring undercurrent theme through pretty much the entire first two seasons of Deep Space Nine. Bajor, I, I mean, I already talked about this, right? Rebels fighting uh, government? You know, they have no idea what they're doing. They've never done this before. Most of the people who are currently in government have never been alive for when there was a government of Bajor, right? So they're just kind of making it up as they go here. So it makes sense that they would look at the situation and pardon people who are criminalized or in incarcerated for crimes against Cardassians. Because screw the Cardies, right? Ignoring all of the realities of what a crime against a Cardassian might actually entail, like a dangerous murderer, like Ibudan. I, I had to check my notes, I admit it. I forgot his name again. You know, this is obviously a fairly deranged individual. Look at how much work and effort he put into just trying to frame Odo. It wasn't, a, you know, a, a, a completely tight you know, case or whatever like that. In fact, he was actually, frankly, pretty sloppy about it. But a lot of work and effort was put into what is effectively just revenge. And, as Odo points out, killing your own clone is still murder. And you'll notice he waited until that clone was fully grown and therefore existed as his own separate and sentient entity in order to kill him. So I agree, that is definitely killing. That is murder at that point. Huh. That'll come up in TNG as well, now that it occurs to me. Not yet. Well, we're not there yet. But anyways. So it, sh it just shows how they are amateurs when it comes to this kind of thing. How they aren't thinking long term. Because they're not used to thinking long term. <sighs> One of the things I also find, this is the second time Odo shows his particular mentality. Where he's willing to shove... Ibudan off the station just because he's a dangerous, violent criminal who, you know, he has issues with. And Odo's like, no, 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 no. What I find most interesting about that is Odo phrases his mentality as justice rather than what it really is, which is order. And I've mentioned this before, and again, this is just another step in his arc. Hmm. But what I find most interesting is that later, when Cisco says, I need to temporarily relieve you of command, or of duty, I should say. Odo takes that pretty hard. And I always found that interesting to me. Because, that's a redundancy, I always found that interesting to me. I always found that interesting to my pillow. <laughs> I have always found it interesting how emotional Odo gets at certain scenes. It's it's a part of his early character arc, the fact that he's got that mask up. He's got the outsider mentality. The same thing Tuvok would do over on Voyager, for example. Um, the idea that he is an outsider, but doesn't really want to be. He's just kind of gotten used to that because of his past and bitterness or cynicism or experience or whatever, right? And so... I like how Odo, when he is relieved, takes it so personally, even though if he was to sit and think about it, it's completely the right move, from two different perspectives. First of all, politically. It is the politically correct move to try and appease the Bajoran populace and the Bajoran government. Duh. Don't even need to discuss that. But it's also the right move from the perspective of, as Dax pointed out, conflict of interest. Odo himself points out that Odo himself is the prime suspect. He does not hide that. He does not try to side... He, he, he approaches that and hits that point straight on the head. 
Now, of course he does. It's Odo. That's his mentality. I'm the prime suspect, and that's part of, you know, that's part of the case. That's part of the evidence, right? I need to consider that in, involved in this. But then, when he is removed from duty, he takes that, he, he does not take that well at all, even though he should, if he was as he presented himself, be the kind of person who understands. You, you see where I'm going with this? So then we have Zarya, and yeah, or Zara. You know, I don't actually know how to pronounce that. I don't think they say it in the episode. Anyways, the anti-shapeshifter guy, who they actually, from what I understand, apparently they wanted to bring him back and do more with him in the future. They never did. He never shows up in the show ever again. But he stirs up trouble. He is a very obvious anti-shapeshifter. In fact, my first gut reaction on looking at this guy was that he was working with Ibudan, who I had to look it up his name again, in order to try and push things against Odo. But it turns out, no. He's just some jackass who's probably got an agenda, which, again, was never analyzed or discussed because he never comes back. But what I find most interesting about the crowd... Well, actually, before I get to the crowd, I'm sorry, forgive me. Let me segue for one quick second and talk about Quark. First of all, the scene in Odo's office between Quark and Odo is gold. It's not as good as it will get. It's not perfect. It's not diamond-level quality as far as, you know, acting and presenting. But it's still definitely gold. The two actors, like I said, do gel very nicely. There's some honest-to-good honest chemistry there. But what I like most about it is, even this early on, third episode in the series, we already see the... the supremely unique friendship, eh, relationship that the two have together. Like, there's some obvious degrees of respect, understanding, and caring there, in both directions, that also goes alongside and hand-in-hand hand with antagonizement and aggravation and competitiveness. It's still an, a, a definitively positive relationship, but that's a net positive. There's a lot of, I guess baggage is the word I want to use here. There's a lot of baggage in the way the two connect to each other. That's the wrong word. I don't want to use that word. There's a lot more depth to it than just frenemies, you know? It's hard to define it with a single word because it's such a, a variant and there's so much to, to it. Now, of course, we don't see all of that right now. All of that will develop over the next several years. But we can see the beginnings of it even right here in this early episode and how Quark is willing to basically reach out on behalf of this. There's a great scene early on where Zarya, or how the hell you're supposed to say his damn name, is like, yeah, he's terrible, yeah, yeah. And then Quark leans over and says, yep, he's a miserable, terrible, rotter bastard, but he's no collaborator, and he's no killer. I liked that. So now we'll talk about the mob. So we got the mob. And they're like, rah! They, turn, they all turn into Waluigi. Rah! And what I love about this is... You know, oh, sis, first of all, there's a subtle touch, and I think this is on the director specifically. We see Bajoran officers defending Odo, and then a Federation guy gets involved. We see Federation and Bajoran people pretty much working hand in hand in order to defend Odo against the mob. It's not really called attention to, it's just there on the screen. But it's a nice touch. It's, uh, it's something that will actually come up in the future many times, the unification in the face of some kind of external problem. You know, the easiest way to unify. But I also love the fact that Cisco tries to speechify them down and fails. And I like that because he should fail. They're a mob. 
it's hard to speechify a mob. You need to be at Picard levels to really speechify a mob down. What? Picard is great at speeching. It, it's his focused skill, for God's sakes. So, but I also like that when you sit back and think about it, what are they really doing this for? Is it fear of the unknown, that you're different? I don't really think so. Is it because he worked with the Cardassians once upon a time? I think that's definitely adding to the fire. But I don't personally think that's what it is. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on what you think the actual root cause of the mob is. Because my opinion is that it's just anger. That's it. Not anger at Odo. Not anger at the Federation. Just anger. A lot of angry people who have been hurt and who are used to being angry and who have been angry for a long time. Most of these, probably every single Bajoran in that crowd has probably been angry since they were born, basically. Since they were kids. Since they could first process the emotion. And, well, this happens, and that's all it takes. It's one little spark. A Bajoran has been killed. What?! Kill him! And notice Zarya tries to use the evidence as his excuse, keeping in mind that there's no real evidence implicating Odo at all. All they've done is indicate how Odo could have done it. There's, there's a term for that. It's called circumstantial. <laughs> but it's such a transparent way to try and hide the reality of what the mob wants, which is mob justice, also known as not justice at all. So then they wrap it up. You know, oh, it was you. Killing your own clone is still murder. Last thing I want to say, Cisco gives a log entry. There's one part of, oh, oh, yawn. There's one part about it I really like. He mentions how, as far as I, I forget the I forget the phrasing, but as far as I'm aware, o Odo has yet to receive an apology from any of the people who desecrated and attacked his his you know office and tried to lynch him. And I liked that little tidbit. It's something that Deep Space Nine will be doing for the entire course of its run, with only a few exceptions. It's about consequence. I know I've talked about that word so much on my Voyager ruminations and on my Babylon 5 ones. It's all about consequence. And that was, and I think I've talked about this before, that was one of the things they walked into Deep Space Nine saying, we need to do this. We need to make this a thing. We need to show consequences because we can't have change something and then leave at the end of the episode like you can on the original series or like they are doing on TNG. Whatever we do is still going to be here tomorrow. So they show that this isn't just wrapped up in a neat little bow and everything's resolved like TNG and TOS would usually do because that's not the nature of the show. And I like that. And I for forgive me for really going off on this one. I like this episode. Please tune in next time for... Whatever episode it is, I don't remember. But I'll see you guys next time, guys.